following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. The day was April 24, 2013, and our first son was going to be born that day. My wife, Carrie, she went into labor, and... I didn't know what to do because it was our first time this happened to us. So we drove to the hospital. Uh, we went to Peace Arch Hospital in White Rock, and uh, we got checked in, and, and we, got our, we got our room, and, and Carrie laid down on the, on the, on the bed, and, and the nurse said, you know, when, when the contractions get a little bit worse, uh, call us, and, you know, we'll, we'll go from there. So I said, okay, and, and I did what any other, you know, curious male would do. I started checking out the room naturally, right? I started looking around in all the cupboard and stuff, seeing all the doctor's things and and I started to realize that it was a really nice room. It was it, like I compared it to like a, a bit of a four-star hotel. It had a decent pull-out bed for me. Uh, it was a comfy as well. It had storage underneath the bed. It had a plug near the bed so I can plug in my iPhone. As we all know, that's very important. Uh, we had our own fridge. We even had our own private bathroom and shower. It was awesome. And on top of it all, I'm not even joking, there was a window with a view of the ocean from our hospital room. Can you believe it? And like the ocean was pretty far away, but I could see the ocean, let me tell you. And when, when Carrie, when she was in labor, I was sitting beside her holding her hand and you know, she was doing her thing and I was staring out the window pretending like I was on a beach in Mexico sipping out of a coconut. You know, I thought to myself, I can stay here all week. This isn't bad at all. But then later on in, you know, as she was, as, as, the, as the hours went, went on, I thought to myself, I had a, I had a mini freak out. I thought, what if they're charging us extra for this room? I thought, it's too nice. I, I, this is for sure not like the base model room. And so as the nurse was, you know, doing her thing, I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, excuse me, ma'am, uh, I know you're a little bit busy right now and all, but did we somehow get bumped up to like an executive suite or something like that? Are we getting charged extra? Because if we're getting charged extra, I will roll my wife out of here by myself. Well, don't, don't, you don't have to do it. I will do it myself. I do not want to be charged extra. Turns out that's how all the rooms were in this particular hospital. So if you're going to have a baby, go to Peace Arch Hospital in White Rock. I highly recommend it. (laughs) See, in the lower mainland, when a child is born, they're born in a great hospital with great rooms, with great beds, surrounded by great people. But did you know that when Jesus was born, God, the creator of the universe, when he took on flesh, his setting was nowhere close to the setting that my son was born into. Did you know that when Jesus was born, he was born in a less than ideal situation? It's true. I don't know if you know much about the story, but we're going to learn a little bit about how Jesus' birth played out, and I think you're going to be a little bit surprised. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach out into the pew in front of you and grab one of these Bibles. Uh, It's page 715, Luke chapter 2. We're also going to be reading it on the side screens here. It says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. Now, Caesar loved to count his people because every person that he counted meant an extra tax dollar in his pocket. So he created a census and and, and he said, everyone needs to go back to their own town in order to register. And verse four explains what happens next. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. 
He was there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, Mary was pregnant and she made their, she's about to give birth and they make their way on this, on this big trek back to, back to Bethlehem and they're trying to find a hotel to stay at. They're trying to find a place to sleep. Um, but as you can imagine, everyone's going back to their home, own, their, their hometown. So it's, it's pretty busy and there was no room anywhere. It was impossible to find a room. Everywhere they went, there was no availability. So here's where they settled. Verse six. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So 2,000 years ago, the God of the universe took on flesh and became human, just like you and I. And he was carried in the womb of a woman for nine months, just like you and I. You know, you can just picture it. Mary, nine months pregnant, wandering around Bethlehem one night in labor, and she can't find a room. And then finally she finds this stable where she probably had to lay a blanket down uh, on, on, the, on the dirty floor, covering hay with animals and mice and rats around. She laid it on the floor, and that's where she gave birth to the Son of God. This didn't happen in a private room in White Rock. There was no doctors or nurses around. It didn't happen not even in a house or a a comfortable bed. It happened in front of some curious animals in a dirty old manger. And when Jesus was born, he wasn't placed in a heated bassinet like children are placed today. Instead, he was, you know, the, the, the heated bassinet with all the bells and whistles. The Bible says that he was placed in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. Now, the Bible never specifically describes a barn or a stable, but the scholars have kind of filled in the rest of the story with information gathered from archaeology and history and just common sense. Where there's a feeding trough, there's a stable. And that's where they had baby Jesus, the God of the universe. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, why, Lewis? Why was Jesus born in a stable of all places? Why did God choose this as the, birth, the place where his son was going to be born? You know, God is, well, he's God. He could have created any kind of scenario for his son to be brought into the earth. He could have magically had three midwives appear, one to hold Mary's right hand, one to hold her left hand, and the other to fan her and feed her grapes as she's going through labor. You know, God could have created a scenario where there was one last room available in the last hotel that they went to, and that last room in that last hotel was the penthouse suite. How cool would that be? And that penthouse suite, it was originally going to be occupied by a high up, a government official, but the guy had to cancel last minute. But before canceling, he had ordered all the best food, all the best movie channels, all the best Egyptian cotton, and he even had a bidet installed because that's how high up government officials roll. Now that would have been a pretty cool birth story of Jesus. You know, God could have welcomed Jesus into the world with a mariachi band comprised of eight Spanish angels singing Feliz Navidad. But instead, he was welcomed into the world with grunting cattle and chirping chickens. You know, when you really think about it, God could have had Jesus come onto the earth as an adult, bypassing this whole gong show of being born in a stable. But he chose not to. Why? 
Why did God choose not to do that? What is God trying to communicate to us through all of this? Well, that's exactly what we're going to be discovering over the next few minutes. We're in week two of our Christmas series called A Magnificent Christmas. And as you can see, as you probably noticed, we've misspelled magnificent on purpose. We've used the word magnify in there because we're putting a magnifying glass on on different parts of the nativity scene and we're highlighting we're highlighting different parts in order to discover some truths about God and this morning we're going to focus on the stable now when you look at the stable and all all that is entailed about being born in a stable as your outline says you can't help but notice that Jesus lived in a human life with human problems Jesus was human and he experienced human problems now, we have, our, our, our kids now are five and three, both boys, and they're, they, they like to hug each other. And so Max, our five-year-old, he'll go up to Clay, and he'll give him a big bear hug, and, and you know, my wife and I, we'll sit there on the couch thinking, oh, we are the best parents in the world. We're like, high five, and you're like, we got it made in the shade. But then, you know, Max, he started, he started to get a little bit tricky these days. He, instead of, instead of hugging, he starts off with a hug, but then his arms start coming up and up and up until they're around his little brother's neck, and he's pulling his little brother's neck towards him, and we're standing up, we're saying, Max, you let go of your brother, or you're going to be grounded forever. You let go right now. As you can imagine, our house isn't perfect. Our family isn't perfect. But you know what? Neither was Jesus' family. As your outline says, Jesus experienced family issues. He experienced family issues. Did you know that Jesus had at least six siblings? The Gospel of Mark chapter 6 and Matthew 13 named four brothers that Jesus had and said that he also had sisters, plural. So we know there was at least two of them. So Jesus was the eldest of at least seven kids with a father who had died. That means Jesus grew up in a single mother household with at least seven kids, and he was the oldest child. Now, many of you probably don't know what it's like being the oldest of a large family. Most of us can't relate to that, but I can relate to that. I'm the oldest of 10 kids, so I have nine younger siblings uh, uh, that I, I grew up with, and now it's fun, okay? It's fun having a big family now, but when I was a teenager, when I was 14, it was the worst, <laughs> because there was like 18 kids under the age of 10. It was like growing up in a daycare at home. I, I, I couldn't stand it, and I remember on Saturday mornings, all I wanted to do was sleep in. You know, teenager, that's all we want to do. Sunday, we wake up early, we go to church. Saturday, is the only day that I get. But every Saturday morning, one of my brothers, I don't know who it was, because if I found out, I would have nailed him, but I don't know who it was. One of them went up to the top of the stairs, and my bedroom was at the bottom of the stairs, and they threw a basketball down the stairs. Who does that? And all I would hear in the morning is, boom, 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 and then smash right into my door, and it would rattle me every Saturday morning. I, I don't know how many weeks this happened for, but it was a long time. I, you, you could ask my mom about it. And, and I, you know, the first one would kind of rattle you, and I think to myself, okay, it's not going to happen again. A couple minutes later, guess what I hear? The basketball is coming down the stairs again and smash, and then I get up, and I freak out. I'm like, who's throwing the basketball? I'm going to strangle you. It's not always fun. You know, I remember I used to get interrogated by my mom when I left the house. Any parents here interrogate your children? I know that, I know you're out there. Yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you for being honest. You know, it's like, where are you going? Who are you hanging out with? Well, I'm hanging out with Simon again. He's my only friend. You know, what time are you coming home? What are you doing? 
I'd get interrogated. Now when my younger brother leaves the house, she's like, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to go out with some friends. When are you getting home? I don't know, midnight. Okay, have fun. <laughs> are you serious, mom? <laughs> you know, growing up as the, old, as the oldest in a big family is not always fun, and it can sometimes be dysfunctional. And Jesus' family was definitely not perfect, and it was also sometimes dysfunctional. Even as an adult, we see that Jesus' family always didn't get along very great. Actually, Jesus' family wasn't initially supportive of his traveling ministry. One day, they 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 were not supportive to the point where one day they decided to do a bit of an intervention on him. Matthew chapter 3 briefly describes it. It says, his family went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. See, things weren't always perfect in Jesus' family. He experienced family issues. Not only that, but Jesus also experienced temptation. You know, soon after Jesus was baptized in water, he was led out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights where he was approached by Satan. The Gospel of Matthew explains that Satan came up to Jesus three separate times with three separate temptations and tried to, tried to tempt him three separate ways. He tried to manipulate Jesus. He tried to trick his mind, and he tried to trick him into sinning. You can read the whole story for yourself in Matthew chapter 4. But the point is this. Not even Jesus was sheltered from the temptation and lies from Satan. He lived a human life with human problems, just like you and I. Even Jesus was tempted. As your outline says, Jesus also experienced betrayal. Did you know that? You know, Jesus had his circle of friends. He had his acquaintances on the outside circle. And then, you know, he had his friends group. And then he had his, he had his close friends. And then he had his core friends. On the night before Jesus was going to die, he was praying in a garden. And he was approached by one of his closest friends, one of his disciples, one of his students, one of the people that he'd been pouring into for the last few years. And that man stabbed him in the back. The Gospel of Matthew actually describes the moment. Matthew 26, verse 47 says this, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. You see, Jesus experienced the kiss of betrayal from one of his closest friends. Jesus had human problems in every area of his life. In his family life with a not-so-perfect family. In his thought life as he was, he was, Satan tried to deceive him with lies. In his personal life as he was betrayed by one of, the, one of his closest and best friends. But Jesus also experienced something that all humans will experience at the end of our lives. As the outline says, Jesus also experienced death. Now, I read a lot of, I read a lot of comics, uh, superhero books to my kids, and this is usually how they go. 
Batman is hanging out in Gotham City one day, just continuing to save the world, right? Then all of a sudden, the Hulk turned evil. Oh no, the Hulk turned evil, and Hulk smashed him right on the head, and Batman is down. What is he gonna do? But then, out of nowhere, do 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 do, Superman comes in and smashes the Hulk down, and he saves Batman, and together they save the world. And everyone gives Batman and Superman a round of applause. I should write a book, I think. (laughs) But the superhero never dies, right? In the book, the superhero never dies. Except Jesus did. Jesus wasn't sheltered from experiencing the harsh reality of his physical body dying. There was no Superman that came down to save him. There was no army of angels. There was no supernatural miracle that happened right in the nick of time that prevented his death. Jesus actually died. So why? Why did God choose this path for his son? What is God trying to communicate to us through all of this? Well, as your outline says, God is communicating the fact that Jesus understands your life and your problems. You know that? He understands your life and your problems. The fact that Jesus experienced all aspects of human life means that he knows exactly what you're going through. Jesus has walked in your shoes. He had the same struggles that you lived with. His his family thought he was crazy. His best friends turned their backs on him. Jesus was tempted. He endured suffering. He felt emotions, the same emotions that you and I feel. He received criticism. He was rejected. He was critiqued. And on top of that, he even died. You see, Jesus understands exactly what it's like to live in this broken world. Hebrews chapter 4 explains it this way. It says, the writer says this, For we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just like we are. You see, when we see the stable and the fact, we remind ourselves of the fact that Jesus was born in this dirty old barn with animals and in less than ideal circumstances, we're reminded that Jesus walked through human life just like us. Jesus had a human body, a human heart, a human mind, and a human will, just like we do. And because he walked in the same, same, same way that we walk the earth, he's able to empathize with us. Now, the definition of empathize is this. It's to understand or share the feelings of another. To understand or share the feelings of another. Now, my wife, Carrie, uh, she's, she's dealt with uh, depression in her life. And she actually shares about this openly. She's actually shared about this on this very stage a few years back about some of her ups and downs in her life. And, and she, she's dealt with it and she's seen counselors and she's taken medication and she's now able to cope with this mental illness in a help, helpful way, in a healthy way. But, you know, because of the ups and downs and because of what she'd gone through, She's been able to sit down with dozens of teenage girls and, and, and you know, talk to them about what they're going through in their, in their mental illness. You know, if you book a meeting with me and you want to share openly about your depression, I, I can put myself in your shoes. I can try to put myself in your shoes. I can try to feel for you. And I really would feel sorry. My heart would break for your situation. 
But the reality is, I don't truly know or understand what you're going through. I know secondhand what it feels like because, you know, I've walked beside my wife, you know, but my empathy has limits. I've never actually experienced it for myself. I can't fully empathize with you. The reality is I've never experienced depression before, so I don't really truly understand what you're going through. But Carrie does. She knows exactly what you're going through. She understands because she's gone through it firsthand. She can share your feelings. She, she's felt what you feel. She's experienced your lows before. She knows what it's like to have a fire hose of negative thoughts coming through your mind day after day, moment after moment for weeks and years. She knows what it feel like, feels like to not be able to or not want to get out of bed for days. She knows exactly what that person is going through. And so she can sit with someone who has been struggling with mental illness and put a hand on their shoulder and say, I know exactly how you're feeling. Now, if you were going through an issue in your life, wouldn't you want to sit down with someone who knows exactly how you're feeling? Of course you do. You know, if, don't you want someone to be in your corner who fully understands your struggles? Of course you do. Don't you want to be encouraged by someone who has felt what you feel and have lived through what you are currently living through? Of course you do. Now here's the reality. God, the Lord of the universe, he left the throne, his throne in heaven and took on the form of a human servant. Never before did he feel what it felt like to be hungry or tired or tempted or poor or in agony to the point where he sweats blood. But he chose to experience all those things. God chose to send his son to the earth to experience all those things. And he experienced all those things, therefore he understands all those things. He knows exactly what you're going through. Are you experiencing rejection or betrayal? Well, so did Jesus. He had some of his best friends turn their backs on him. He understands. Are you experiencing abuse? Well, so did Jesus. He was beaten and bruised. He understands. Are you experiencing abandonment? Well, so did Jesus. He had a disciple who denied him three times. He understands. You experiencing family problems? Well, so did Jesus. He had brothers that didn't believe in him at times. He understands. Are you experiencing financial issues? Well, so did Jesus. He was born into a low-income family. He understands. Are you experiencing cruelty? Well, so did Jesus. He died one of the worst deaths that anyone could ever die. He understands. What are you experiencing this morning? What is it for you? Whatever it is, the reality is this. Jesus understands. He knows exactly what it's like to be a human in this cold world. He understands. He gets it, and he gets it because he's experienced it. He can fully empathize with you. The writer of Hebrews explains it this way. Because Jesus was tempted as we are and suffered as we do, he understands us and is able to help us when we're tempted. He continues to say in Hebrews 4, we don't have a high priest, we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weaknesses and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy and accept the help. Isn't that incredible? 
God isn't seated a million miles away, unwilling or unable to understand you. He isn't seated a million miles away, unable or unwilling to help you. He understands because he's experienced all that you are experiencing. God took on flesh and walked in the, uh, many miles in your shoes, and now he's reaching out to you, waiting and willing to help you. He's willing to give you mercy. He's willing to give you strength, and he's willing to give you hope this morning. And that leads me to today's big idea. Every week, we like to sum up the teaching in one big idea. Here it is today. Jesus came to earth so we could come to him. Jesus came to earth so we can come to him. Jesus lived with the same problems that you live with. He had an imperfect family. He had imperfect friends. He was tempted and he even died. He experienced those all for a reason. Jesus came to earth so we could come to him. And look at the invitation that Jesus gives us while he was here on the earth. Matthew chapter 11 reads like this. He says, come to me. Don't go somewhere else. Don't try to find help or worth anywhere else. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So are you here today, and are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you struggling? Are you feeling unfulfilled? Is your heart troubled? Is life knocking you down at every point? Are you, are you taking on too much that you can handle? Do you need rest today? Jesus understands. And he came to earth so we can come to him.